Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 45, and the 53rd episode of this weekly podcast, which makes this the first episode of the second year. To me, that's still a little difficult to fathom. Last week, I covered what is known as the Mesha Stili. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. It is this stele that serves as the basis for much of the history of Moab, which is, of course, the subject of this week's episode. So let's get started. In the period corresponding with the Old Testament, the capital of Moab was Dibon. Like I covered last week, and as seen in both the Mesha Stele and Second Kings, Moab often fought with Israel, which was situated to the west on the other side of the Dead Sea. Geographically, Moab was positioned on a plateau about 3,000 feet or 910 meters above sea level. Now keep in mind that it was only a stone's throw from the Dead Sea, which lies below sea level. So, the area, despite its close proximity to the ultra-saline body of water, is elevated about 4,300 feet or 1,300 meters above it. Moab was bordered to the west by the Dead Sea, and to the northwest by the southern section of the Jordan River. To its east was low, rolling hills, and past that Amman and the Arabian Desert. To the south lay Edom. These borders remained relatively stable throughout its history. But its northern border varied, and tended to hover on a line that ran east to west and was located north of the Dead Sea. The area is dominated by soiled limestone hills which form a plateau that is nearly treeless, and while the terrain is somewhat steep, it is also fertile. In spring, the hills are overlaid with grass, and as would be expected where grass grows, so do agricultural foodstuffs such as grain. In what was northern Moab are found a number of long, deep canyons. Also in this area is Mount Nebo most well-known as the place of Moses' death, just as he finally viewed the Promised Land. The area receives more rainfall than would be expected, but still has hot summers. Also, owing partially to the altitude, it's cooler than the land west of the Jordan. In fact, it snows relatively frequently in the winter and spring. In Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 9, its boundaries are delineated as beth jesh Amoth thought to be to the north, Balmion to the east, and Kiriathame to the south. Keep in mind that the prophet Ezekiel is thought to have lived in the 6th century BC. But even in the Old Testament, the boundaries were constantly moving. Specifically, the list of cities given in Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 and Jeremiah chapter 48, where Heshbon, Eliah, and Jazar are mentioned to the north of beth Jeshemoth. Madaba, beth and Mapatha to the east of Balmian, and Dibon, Iriah, Bezer, Jehaz, and Kirathseth to the south of Kiriathaim. Also, the primary rivers of Moab mentioned in the Bible are the Anan, the Dimon, or Dabon, and the Nimrim, all believed to flow into the Dead Sea. The book of Isaiah is thought to have been recorded about 200 years before Ezekiel, while Jeremiah is believed to have recorded events from about the same time as Ezekiel. Whichever, they all attest to Moab's constantly shifting boundaries. The region occupied by Moab during the period of its greatest size 
which was before the invasion of the Amorites, was divided into three districts. First there was the enclosed corner south of the Arnon, which was usually called the Field of Moab. Next, there was the area with rolling hills north of the Arnon, opposite Jericho, and leading up to the hills of Gilead. This was generally called the Land of Moab. Finally, there was the region below sea level in the tropical depths of the Jordan Valley and adjacent to the Dead Sea. In its day, the country of Moab was the source of numerous natural resources. These included limestone, salt, and balsam from the Dead Sea region. In addition, and similar to Damascus, the Moabites occupied a vital place along the king's highway. Remember, this was the ancient trade route that connected Egypt with Mesopotamia, Syria, and Anatolia. As with other societies on this route, specifically the Edomites and Ammonites, the trade brought the Moabites economic prosperity. Some researchers believe the Moabites immigrated from the Transjordanian highlands. They could have been an offshoot from the nations referred to by the Egyptians as the Shutu or the Shashu. Though the archaeological evidence is thin, the existence of the Moabites prior to the rise of the Israeli state has been assumed. This assumption is primarily from a giant statue erected at Luxor, Egypt by Pharaoh Ramses II in the 13th century BC, which names a country of Moab among a series of nations conquered during a campaign. This statue is over 62 feet or 19 meters tall and weighs more than 1,000 tons. A picture will be posted. You should know where to look. But just in case you don't, it will be on the podcast Facebook page. As seen in Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 30, Moab and Ben-Amami were both Lot's sons and grandsons at the same time. I'm not going to explain how that happened, but you can find the narrative in the chapter starting in verse 30. They were born after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The circumstances of their births are thought to be a precursor of the curse facing the descendants of the two men. Ben-Ami was said to have been the ancestors of the Ammonites, the subject of next week's episode. The area from the rich highlands at the eastern side of the chasm of the Dead Sea, as far north as the mountain of Gilead, was believed to have been first inhabited by the Imam. The Moabites are thought to have driven this group out. Of course, the warrior tribes of the Amorites, after crossing the Jordan River, would do the same to the Moabites. The Amorites, recorded in the Old Testament as being ruled by King Shion, pushed the Moabites to the region south of the river Arnon, which then formed their northern boundary. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 1, God renewed his covenant with the Israelites at Moab before the Israelites entered the Promised Land. Like I mentioned before, Moses died there as he was prevented by God from entering the Promised Land due to his actions found in Numbers chapter 20. It is in this passage that he struck the rock with his staff and did not attribute the miracle of the flowing water to God. Moses was buried in an unknown location in Moab, and the Israelites remained there for 30 days to mourn his death. According to the book of Judges in chapter 11, the Israelites did not pass through the land of the Moabites, but instead conquered the Amorite Shion's kingdom and his capital at Heshbon. After their overthrow of Canaan, the Israelites' interactions with the Moabites were of a mixed variety. They occasionally fought and also saw times of peace. 
In Judges chapter 3, the Israelite tribe of Benjamin did suffer through a severe conflict when the Moabites aligned with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. During this period, the tribe of Benjamin were servants to the Moabites for 18 years. This subjugation was lifted when the Benjaminite judge, hence the name of the book. Anyway, a judge named Ehud ben Gerah assassinated the Moab king Eglon and then led an Israelite army against the Moabites at a crossing of the Jordan River, in the process killing many Moabites. Moab is also mentioned in the book of Ruth. In fact, according to the book, in the first chapter, Ruth was a Moabite, and the book attests to the friendly relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites, at least those from Bethlehem, which of course was a town in the tribe of Judah. And that's not the end of the story. As it turns out, Ruth married Boaz, and they had a son named Abed. Abed fathered Jesse, and Jesse was King David's father. Therefore, Ruth the Moabite was King David's great-grandmother. So King David was at least in a small part a Moabite. And when the not-yet-King David was being harassed by the then-King Saul, David asked King Mespah of Moab to watch over his parents as seen in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Apparently, the friendly relations between Israel and Moab ended soon thereafter, though. The next time Moab is mentioned is in the account of David's war, who made the Moabites a tributary to Israel. At that time, Moab may have been under the rule of an Israeli governor. Later, when the exiles returned to Judea from Babylon, and as seen in Ezra chapter 2 verse 6, among their midst were 2,812 descendants of Pahath Moab. Pahath literally means the ruler of Moab. Following the destruction of the first temple, the knowledge of which groups of people belonged to which nation was lost. Then, the Moabites were treated the same as other Gentiles. Consequently, all members of the nations, which included the Moabites, could convert to Judaism without restriction. This, however, created a problem as seen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The dilemma arose when Jewish men married women from the various nations without the women first converting to Judaism. More on that later. When the kingdom of Israel was divided, at the time of the reign of Rehoboam, Moab seems to have been absorbed into the northern kingdom. Researchers estimate this was sometime around 930 BC. After this time, Moab continued to be subservient to Israel until the death of Ahab, an event thought to have occurred sometime around 853 BC. Specifically, at that time, the Moabites refused to pay tribute and asserted their independence, thereby declaring war upon the kingdom of Judah. The Moabites, who at the time were ruled by King Mesha, one of the same as the king who created the Mesha Stele, the subject of last week's episode, the king rebelled against Jehoram, who allied himself with Jehoabath, king of the kingdom of Judah, and with the king of Edom, as seen in 2 Kings. According to the account in the book, the dark red color of the water deceived the Moabites and caused them to attack prematurely. They were then nearly defeated, but I'm being redundant with last week's episode. Moabite sources refer to this as the Battle of Zis. In the end, according to both the Mishastili and the Book of Second Kings, Moab was completely victorious and regained some, 
or all, depending on the source, of the territory which Israel had previously taken. The Battle of Ziz is the last important date in the history of the Moabites recorded in the Old Testament. Well, that's not exactly true. In the year of Elisha's death, probably around 832 BC, the Moabites invaded Israel and later aided Nebuchadnezzar in his expedition against Jehoiakim. Then, the references to them are more about their people and not their history. In fact, the kingdom seems to disappear. But references to Moab are frequent in the prophetical books, in two chapters of Isaiah, chapter 15 and 16, as well as Jeremiah, chapter 48, which for the most part cover the so-called burden of Moab. But these chapters give little information about the land or kingdom. The culture of the Moabites is a different matter. Its prosperity and pride, which the Israelites thought incurred the wrath of God, are frequently commented on. Also, the mutual contempt between the two nations is referenced. More on this later. Then there is the Nimrud clay inscription. As a reminder, Nimrud is believed to be one and the same as the city founded by Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah. This city is located in what is now present-day northern Iraq. The clay inscription is thought to have been the words of Tiglath-Pileser III, the Moabite king Shalmunu, and maybe the Shalman who conquered Beth Arabal in Hosea chapter 10 verse 14. On the clay inscription, it is noted that the area was a tributary to Assyria. Of course, no history of the area and era is complete without a mention of Sargon. On a cuneiform tablet, he speaks of a revolt against him by Moab, also allied with Philistia, Judah, and Edom. But another such tablet records where Shemash Nadab, the king of Moab, brings a tribute to Sargon when apparently Moab was a vassal state. Another Moabite king, this time Mutzuri, is mentioned as one of the subject princes at the courts of Asharhadon and Asurbanipal. While Kashaltap, possibly his successor, is named on a clay cylinder from Ashurbanipal. Outside of the Old Testament and the Meshastili, there are few historical references to the religion of Moab. It is thought that the predominant religion was similar, or maybe even an ancient Semitic faith. The Book of Numbers, in chapter 25, indicates that the Moabites persuaded the Israelites to join in their sacrifices. Their chief god was Shamash, and quite naturally, Israelites sometimes referred to them as the people of Shamash. And, like I touched on last week, as found in 2 Kings, the Moabites at times, particularly when they were desperate, offered human sacrifices to Shamash. Their king Mesha gave up his firstborn son and heir apparent to their god in order to win a battle against Israel. The Old Testament, surprisingly, says this sacrifice worked. I have no explanation how that happened. And the wise King Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 11, built what was called a high place for Shamash on the hill before Jerusalem. The passage goes on to describe it as the detestation of Moab. Apparently, it was an altar and was not destroyed until the reign of Josiah some 300 years later. The Meshastili also references a female counterpart of Shamash, known as Ashtar Shamash. 
and also a god named Nebo, who may have been one and the same as the more well-known Babylonian divinity Nabu. And guess where the name of Mount Nebo, Moses' place of death, came from? As for their language, it is an extinct Canaanite language, maybe only spoken in Moab. It was related to Phoenician, as it was written using a variant of that alphabet. But, according to Glottolog, Moabite was not a distinct language from Hebrew. For those of you not in the know, and we were all there until someone got us in the know, Glottolog is a bibliographic database of the world's lesser-known languages. It is maintained at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. And now you know. And, when you were asked that question on Jeopardy, it would make my day if you would cite your source. Most of our knowledge about Moabite comes from the Meshastili, which was covered last week. The inscribed stone is the only known extensive text in this language. According to the Old Testament, the Moabites, then allied with the Ammonites, opposed the Israelite invasion of Canaan. As a result of their opposition, both groups were excluded from the congregation for ten generations. Most sources, though, consider the phrase ten generations to be more symbolic than literal, and to more precisely mean that they were excluded for an unlimited time. This was much different than the Egyptians who were excluded for three generations, which allowed an Egyptian convert to marry into the community. Also, the Talmud conveyed the interpretation that the prohibition applied only to male Moabites. Males were not allowed to marry women who were born Jewish or legitimate converts. On the other hand, female Moabites, when converted to Judaism, were permitted to marry with only the normal prohibition of any convert, but the prohibition was not adhered to during the exile. And Ezra and Nehemiah sought to compel a return to the law. They pushed this due to Israeli men marrying women who had not converted to their religion. As a reminder, the Talmud is a central text of Rabbinic Judaism. It usually refers to the collection of writings, named specifically the Babylonian Talmud, but there is also an earlier collection known as the Jerusalem Talmud. Overall, it expands broadly on the Hebrew Bible. The word Talmud translates literally as instruction in Hebrew. The entire Talmud consists of 63 treaties and, in standard print, is over 6,200 pages long. By way of comparison, the Christian Bible, both Testaments, averages around 1,200 pages. Circling back to a topic from earlier in this episode, the marriage of the Bethlehemite meaning from the tribe of Judah, Boaz to the Moabite woman Ruth, after the death of her husband, both of whom, meaning Boaz and Ruth, were then King David's great-grandparents. This relationship is not mentioned with any negative connotations. In my mind, this is indicative that the relationship between Israel and Moab was complicated. Some scholars, though, interpret the book of Ruth as merely recording the history of the era in a neutral manner, permitting the readers themselves to interpret the events as they see fit. It is worth noting that Ruth embraced the god of Naomi, her Israelite mother-in-law, and Ruth chose to go back to Naomi's people after her husband, his brother, and his father, 
who was also Naomi's husband, all died. The Talmud uses this example as the foundation for what a Gentile must do to be converted. Now, there are arguments as to exactly when she was converted, and if she had to repeat the statement in front of the court in Bethlehem when they arrived there. According to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 48, both the man and the people of Moab were exiled to Babylon for their arrogance and idolatry. According to Rashi, the 11th century AD French rabbi and author of a comprehensive commentary on the Talmud, Moab's exile was due to blatant ungratefulness. Even though Abraham, Israel's ancestor, had saved Lot, Moab's ancestor, from Sodom. Jeremiah then prophesizes that Moab's captivity will be returned in the end of days. Historically speaking, it was during the Persian period that Moab essentially disappeared from the known historical record. After that, the territory it occupied was overrun by waves of tribes from northern Arabia, including the Kedarites and after them, the Nabataeans. In Nehemiah chapter 4, it is the Arabs who are mentioned instead of the Moabites as the allies of the Ammonites. The region, though, continued to be known by its biblical name, Moab, for some time. By way of example, when the Crusaders occupied the area some 1,500 years later, the castle they built to defend the eastern part of the kingdom of Jerusalem was called Karak des Moabites. Today, what was once Moab is strewn with hundreds of stone tombs, stone monuments, and stone circles. There are also the remnants of many villages, mostly from the Roman and Byzantian periods. The land is now occupied chiefly by Bedouins, but it contains villages such as Al-Karak. And that is the history of Moab and the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll cover the history of Amman, also mentioned in Genesis chapter 19. You don't want to miss it. And this week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. I've made this request several times and trust that more of you will take me up on it. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcasts as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.